Last week was a historic moment in the life of our church, and it wasn't because we finished the, you know, 30-something weeks of studying the local church. It wasn't because we got 17 more inches of rain. It wasn't any of those reasons. After our service last week, our members voted to appoint a third elder in our church, And so Jared Pulse, by God's grace, was unanimously elected last week. And so for the first time since I've been a pastor here, we have three elders. And I told Jared this this week, and I'll tell you now, Jared is an answer to so many prayers. So many prayers that I've prayed and that you've prayed and that we've prayed. We've prayed for God to raise up godly servant leaders in our church. And he has. Let's give him thanks and praise for that. He's answered our prayers. So he's already on the job technically, has had a good first week serving you well with wisdom and grace. We're going to formally install Jared later in the service after I preach. So probably around 1.30 or so we'll get, get to that. We'll also be installing a new deacon, Callie Sergine, and Justin Hurd as well as a deacon. So we'll come to the installation part of the service Later, but because we're installing another elder today, I thought it would be appropriate for us to begin today and go for three weeks, study for three weeks the book of Titus, the New Testament letter of Titus. So begin finding the short epistle Titus. That's page 938 in the Pew Bibles, if you're using those Bibles there in front of you. Titus, it's right before Philemon. That probably doesn't help you at all. Right after 2 Timothy. You can always use your table of contents if you'd like to. Titus is a short book. We're going to do one chapter a week for three weeks. I picked Titus because Titus is one of the two places in the New Testament that outlines the qualifications for an elder. It tells us what kind of man an elder should be. And Jared is one of these kinds of men. So we're going to spend... Today, looking at chapter 1, next week, chapter 2, and then the week after that, chapter 3. There's a few things about Titus I'll say very generally. Titus is a book written by Paul to a pastor, Titus, who was left on this island called Crete. And so we might be quick to assume, well, this is just pastor talk. This stuff is about what pastors think about. But it's actually not. First of all, we know it's not because it's in the Bible. And the Bible's for every single Christian. Secondly, Paul literally says to Titus, hey, in verse 5, we'll get to in a few minutes, hey, I want you to put what remains into order in the churches in Crete. In other words, I need you to, to work hard to make the churches there on the island of Crete look more and more faithful and biblical and godly, healthy. So the whole book literally is about the church or the churches, how they should look, how they should be governed, who can govern them. What kinds of things the members should be doing for and to one another. You're going to see this theme throughout the book. The two really main focuses in the book are on sound doctrine and good works. And oftentimes, I've said this many times, we'll kind of, our, our disposition, our personality, our interest kind of gravitates to one or the other. We're either the theology police or we're the good works captain. You know what I mean? But in this book, we're going to see both. Both are important for every local church. Sound doctrine is important. What you believe has massive implications for your life. 
But if what you believe doesn't overflow into what Paul says repeatedly, good works, if there aren't good things coming out of your life, out of your doctrine, then your doctrine probably isn't as sound as you think it is. So we're going to see these two themes and sound doctrine and good works. But because churches always will go the way of their leaders, these two things have to first and foremost be present in their leaders. Elders have to be men committed to sound doctrine. They have to note the Bible says and be able to defend it and teach it and articulate it. And they have to be able to demonstrate that they, not just, they don't just believe these things, but they're living these things out. There's a distinctive commitment towards good works. And by the way, this, as you know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, this makes Jared Pulse an excellent candidate for elder in our church. He knows the Word of God, and he's living it out. He's living it out, as does his wife, Caitlin. So, Titus 1 will be our assignment this morning. We're going to see three things in Titus 1. We're going to see, number one, why God made Paul an apostle, verses 1 through 4. Why God made Paul an apostle, verses 1 through 4. Number two, we're going to see who can be made an elder, verses 5 through 9. Who can be made an elder, verse 5 through 9. And then third, what to do with false teachers. What to do with false teachers. That's verses 10 through 16. So why did God make Paul an apostle? Who can be an elder? And what do we do with false teachers? That's where we're going. Number one, why did God make Paul an an apostle, verses 1 through 4. Titus 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child, in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So why did God make Paul an apostle? Paul gives us four reasons in verses 1 through 3. So under number 1, I have four subpoints. I promise the other points won't be that long. Well, I can't, actually, I can't promise that. But four subpoints under point number 1. Why did God make Paul an apostle? We start with number 1, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Do you see that there in verse 1? Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for, and then he starts listing four things. He starts with this one, though, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. God made Paul an apostle in order to bring the elect to faith, for the sake of the faith of the elect. Paul is saying that he's God's chosen means to bring God's chosen ones to faith. Who are the chosen ones? Who are the chosen ones? Well, the chosen ones of God are the ones who have faith. Paul doesn't tell us, interestingly, what to do to become one of the elect. He just tells us what they are. 
The elect are those who have faith. How can we know if we've been chosen by God? We need to ask whether we have faith. And not the ooey-gooey, sappy kind of faith. Not faith in faith. Not abstract faith. But I think a better word is confidence or trust or embracing the person and work of Jesus Christ. Not a mental ascent, but a whole life embodied grip and grabbing and embracing of Jesus. That's faith. It's grabbing onto Christ because He's, you know, He's the only one you have and the only one who can save you. If that's you, then you're elect. If that's not you, then we don't know. It can become you. If at any point you turn away from your sins and you grab onto Jesus Christ with all of your heart, you will be saved and it will be revealed that you are also a chosen one of God. Now, I understand, and I'm not going to derail on this too long, but I understand that this doctrine of election tends to divide and upset people. But this doctrine is actually meant to do the exact opposite. This doctrine is meant to unite and comfort and encourage us. This doctrine tells us that in Christ we are one, that there is no ranking system. Because none of us had anything to do with our faith. None of, none, of, none of us worked our way into God's good graces. We all came in the same way. Through faith. By election. By grace. Therefore, we are one. There's no comparing and competing in the church of Jesus Christ. We're one. And this doctrine is meant to comfort us and encourage us. Give us courage to keep going. When we remember that God the God who made all things, set His sovereign love on us before there even was in us, before we were born, then, it has, then that doctrine has this way of being a warm blanket around our souls. I wonder if you ever feel discouraged or despairing or fearful or anxious. You're like, John, yes, all four this morning. Me too. Me too. You know what helps in a really practical way? This is why doctrine is so practical. When you remember that you belong to God. That you belong to God. That He chose you. He chose you. The God who made all things decided to set His love on you when He didn't have to. And let's just take it a step further. He knew who we would be. He knew what you would do. He knew what would be done to you. He knew the pain. He knew the affliction. He knew the sin. He knew the rebellion that would live in your life, in your heart. And instead of casting you aside, He said, you're mine. You're mine. I'll take that mess. (laughs) And you're mine. And I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to make something beautiful out of it. You see how this doctrine can start to increase our courage and console us. Doctrine is not meant, this doctrine is not meant to divide or discourage. It's meant to unite. It's meant to encourage. It's meant to be a warm blanket around our souls. If you have faith, brother and sister, you are chosen and God loves you no matter what. So, the first reason God made Paul an apostle was for the sake of the faith of God's elect. The second reason 
God made Paul an apostle was to bring the elect to an understanding of the gospel. To bring them to an understanding of the gospel. This is the next phrase there in verse 1. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Their knowledge of the truth. This knowledge isn't just intellectual knowledge though. Again, as I was saying, this is referring to someone who's in a committed relationship with God. Not someone who has a head full of facts about God. Not professional theologians or pastors. Not someone who knows a lot about the Bible. This knowledge is someone who knows Jesus. Someone who has come to be known by Jesus. God's chosen ones have a real and living and vibrant and growing understanding of the truth of the gospel. They embrace this truth of Jesus Christ. And here's the next part that I think we often will miss. If, if, if you've really embraced this truth, you'll not only live for it, you'll be willing to die for this truth. As I said earlier before I prayed, this truth that Christ is yours and you are His is so all-encompassing that nothing else really matters. Jesus Christ is it. That's the kind of knowledge the Bible means when it says knowledge. It's this comprehensive embracing of a person and His work for you. This kind of knowledge is what true Christians and true churches have. I pray that our church would never be a place where nominal Christians feel comfortable, where people who know facts about Jesus but don't actually know Jesus can sit in pews for decades without being changed. May our church have a living and growing and obvious zeal for the truth of Jesus Christ, the knowledge of the truth. That's the second reason Paul was made an apostle. Number three, we're just going to keep going down the line here, The third reason God made Paul an apostle was in order to teach the elect how to live godly lives. So, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, their knowledge of the truth, which, this knowledge, this knowledge of the truth, which accords, corresponds to godliness. Paul says that a knowledge of the truth corresponds to godliness. Understanding the gospel, in other words, always leads to a willingness to lead a new life. A genuine response to the gospel includes a right understanding of the content of the gospel and a right understanding of the demands of the gospel. Look over in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. These two things are side by side. Chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Grace appears, and that grace trains us to live new lives. Our faith proves itself as genuine if it results in a joyful pursuit of living like God wants us to live. Often, especially in those who've grown up in churches, we we have this understanding that God is waiting on us to clean up our lives, and then He'll love us and be happy with us. But the order is actually the exact opposite. God gives us grace, He brings us to Christ, and then He starts to clean up our lives. As Tim Keller says, we don't obey to be accepted. We obey because we are accepted. A Christian wants to obey God because they love God, not because they know God, and, excuse me, and because they know that God loves them, not to gain the love of God, but because they already have it. 
A Christian's not interested in what other people's perceptions are or wanting people to think they're religious and spiritual and amazing. A Christian's been so embraced and enthralled by the glory of Jesus Christ that they can't help but live and embrace a new way of life. This knowledge of the truth accords with godliness. This is why I always try to say something to the effect of you can't be a Christian and not have a new kind of life. It just doesn't work that way. Not perfection, not flawlessness. We are so deeply, deeply broken. Can I get an amen? The rest of you are lying. We're so broken. Even those of us in Christ are so broken. But if we're in Christ, we're being repaired. Slowly. Amen? Slowly. Redemption's happening. Repairs happening. Repentance is happening. Because godliness will always follow this Knowledge of the truth that the elect have. That's the third reason Paul was made an apostle. To teach the elect how to live godly lives. The fourth reason God made Paul an apostle was to proclaim the hope of eternal life. To proclaim the hope of eternal life. This is verses 2 and 3. This is a classic Pauline long sentence. So I'll just read it all again. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. So, God made Paul an apostle to proclaim the hope of eternal life, which is part of God's eternal plan that's now being made known through the preaching of the gospel. Confidence is what the Bible means by hope, by the way, this in hope of eternal life, really is this idea of confidence. There's a confidence of eternal life that's being brought to light through Paul's preaching. The truth of Christ, the knowledge of the truth, creates in us a confidence that God gives His people life after this life. As I sat at my grandmother's bedside in her assisted living facility yesterday, she is so ready to meet Jesus. I can see it in her eyes. She has a confidence, a confidence that when she breathes her last breath, the very next thing she will see is the face of Jesus Christ. And she's ready. She's ready. Are you ready? What's your hope? Is it this wishy-washy thing like you hope one day? Or is it this confidence? This confidence that you know that there's life for you after this life. This is what the preaching of the gospel is meant to create. A hope, a confidence in eternal life. This world is not our home. Amen? Praise God this world is not our home. Because this world... I can think of a lot of words right now. <laughs> Thank you, Susie. This world is so broken. But we have the hope of another world. We've been called to this hope. And we're called to preach this hope. We've been charged with taking this hope to the nations. You see, we don't know who of the 7 billion people on planet Earth God's chosen ones are. So we've got to tell everybody, right? You've got to tell everybody. We don't know who's going to receive it, who's going to believe it, who's going to deny it and argue with you and spit in your face and slap you and run away. We don't know how it's going to go, but we do know that unless this word is proclaimed... As Paul talks about here, 
then no one will have this confidence. If, you, if we keep the message under the rug, then no one will hear it or see it. Romans 10, 14, and 17, How are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. So if we want our neighbors, if we want our children and grandchildren, if we want the nations to believe this gospel, we have to tell them. We have to tell them. We should build relationships for the sake of the gospel. This is often called friendship evangelism. Sometimes it's all friendship and no evangelism. Eventually the relationship has to get to the truth about God and about us. We must tell people the truth if we want them to have a knowledge of the truth. They can't know something that they don't know. We have to tell them. We have to tell them and we have to trust that God will give faith if and when He pleases. So these are the four reasons God made Paul an apostle. To summarize, He made Paul an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect, to bring the elect to an understanding of the gospel, to teach the elect how to live godly lives, and to proclaim the hope of eternal life, which is made known through the preaching of the gospel. Number two, we're going to turn now to verses 5 through 9 and see who can be made an elder. We see why Paul was made an apostle. Now let's see who can be made an elder. Verses 5 through 9. This is why I left you in Crete, Paul says, so that you may put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Notice in verse 5 that Paul says these churches in Crete were in disorder. He says, I left you in Crete to put what remained into order. That means the churches there in all these towns were in disorder. And interestingly though, he says, in order to bring order, I need you to appoint elders in each of these churches, in each of these towns. So order comes among other things, as a result of establishing a council of qualified elders. Churches can exist without elders. It's true in the New Testament. You can have a church without elders, but qualified elders must be in place if a church wants to be properly ordered. This is why the Puritans would talk about true churches versus false churches, or rightly ordered or wrongly ordered churches. You can be a true church wrongly ordered. The goal here is to be a true church rightly ordered. Part of the order is having a group of men, more than one, plural, elders, leading and shepherding the church. Paul makes it clear elsewhere that only men can have this job. Only men can serve as elders in the church. That's 1 Timothy 2.12. But this doesn't mean, however, that all men can be elders in the church. Often it's assumed that, well, if only men can be elders, then that means all men should be elders. No, 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 no. In fact, most men shouldn't be elders. 
There's a very high standard for those who will serve as elders. An elder must be a certain kind of man. And Paul describes what this kind of man is in these following verses. Let's go through it a bit at a time. Verse 6, he says, an elder must be above reproach. The term means unaccused. It refers to someone whose character and conduct is free from any damaging moral or spiritual accusations. Interestingly, right after that, the first area Paul talks about is the elder's home. Above reproach, the husband of one wife. His children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So the most important area where an overseer or elder should be above reproach is in his home. Is in his marriage or sexual life in general. And with his children. Why is this? The principle is simple. Who we are at home is who we are. It's actually quite easy to come up here and pretend to be godly at church. Being godly at church isn't hard at all. This is why a man's character at home becomes the litmus test, the first litmus test of his godliness. Who we are at home is who we are. We must be above reproach starting at home. Then it says his children must be believers or his children are believers. This has caused some controversy, some discussion. It can be translated having faithful children. I think that's a better translation. Paul can't be saying that elders' children's, uh, children must be believers. Because just think about this theologically. How can a dad guarantee that his sons and daughters will be Christians? Is that what Paul means? Hey, dad, you need to make sure your kids are believers. That's not what Paul means. It can't be. It would be an impossible burden for no father that no, no father could bear. What is Paul saying then? Well, Paul is drawing a contrast between obedient and respectful children and lawless and uncontrolled children. The focus is on these children's behavior, not, the, not their eternal state. For example, if my children don't know the Lord now, am I not eligible to be an elder? If my children come to know the Lord, let's say, five years from now or 50 years from now, am I ineligible until then? That's not what Paul is getting at. He's getting at children who live under the authority of their father. And they thus demonstrate not perfection, but they demonstrate a respect and honor of their parents. Not perfectly, but increasingly. Now verse 7 goes on to use this great phrase. I kind of wanted to do the whole sermon on this phrase. I chose not to. Verse 7 summarizes the elder as God's steward. God's steward for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. What's a steward? A steward is a manager or administrator of someone else's property. They act on behalf of another person's interests. They're responsible to the owner for what's been entrusted to their care. So if overseers or elders are God's stewards, then that means elders are overseeing God's property. This means that the church doesn't belong to the elders. The church belongs to God. It's His property. The church doesn't even belong to the church. The church belongs to God. And God hires, if you will, elders to look after what He purchased with His very own blood. So Jared, Nick, and me must constantly remember that this church is not ours. We're simply stewarding something that belongs to God. 
We must not put our hands on it and hold on to it so tight, assuming that it's ours. It'll never be ours. It'll never be ours. It will never be ours. It's God's. And we'll give an account to Him for how we steward His children, His property, His loved ones. Now, in the remainder of verse 7, Paul lists five vices that must not be controlling an elder. So an overseer is, God, is God's steward, steward, must be above reproach. He must not be, number one, arrogant, quick-tempered, drunkard, violent, or greedy for gain. Quickly, we'll look at these one at a time. An arrogant or self-willed man wants his own way. They're inconsiderate of others' opinions. They're ungracious toward those who disagree with him and must not characterize an overseer. A quick-tempered man shouldn't be an elder because he'll destroy the unity and peace of God's family. An elder must deal with people and their problems. So if an elder is a hot-headed, harsh, kind of prone to speak before he thinks kind of guy, he's going to damage the very people he's been called to help and serve. Everyone experiences anger and frustration, but an elder is a man who's learned how to control that anger and frustration in healthy ways for the sake of the unity and peace of God's property. The shepherds, it goes on to say the overseers, the shepherds of God's people aren't controlled by alcohol. They're not a drunkard. They're not controlled by any substance. They're not violent, it says, in their temperament. They're gentle. They're not greedy for gain. They aren't in love with money. Elders are men who love God more than money. Verses 8 and 9 then contrast these negative characteristics with seven positive virtues that God requires His stewards to have. Verse 8, He must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined, holding firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So they must be hospitable first. It's so important. I think this might be probably the second... um, thing that drew me to Jared as a potential elder in our church, because Jared's really good at hospitality, amen? Some of you have enjoyed, enjoyed that food in his home. Caring for God's bride requires being with God's bride. The elders aren't like a group of dudes who sit in an office and just talk about people and make decisions, kind of orchestrating everything. Elders are shepherds, and shepherds live with sheep. They have to start smelling like sheep. They have to be willing to be patient with sheep and understand sheep, know what sheep are feeling and thinking and going through. A lot of that happens at, around, and around the table. This is why I think hospitality is one of the requirements. This most naturally happens over meals. It doesn't have to be over a meal. It could be over coffee. It could be you just doing something fun together. But caring for the church means the elders must be with the church to some level. I love what Alexander Strauch says here. Strauch says, quote, An open home is a sign of an open heart and a loving, sacrificial, serving spirit. A lack of hospitality is a sure sign of a selfish, lifeless, loveless Christianity. End quote. So elders have to be hospita- uh, hospitable. Secondly, it says an elder is a lover of good. They're a lover of good. They understand that doing the right thing is always the right thing to do. They love what is good. They're not indifferent to what is right or wrong. They love the good and hate the wrong. It says they're self-controlled. 
They must be sensible, prudent. They must exercise good judgment, discretion. They must have some level of common sense. This is essential because, again, elders deal with people and their problems. So elders need to know how to control what they say and their feelings. They need to know how to be discreet in how they engage with the people they're serving. They must be self-controlled. There's to be upright, meaning they live in accordance with God's word, God's standards. A just and righteous man can be expected to make just and righteous decisions for the church. It says they're to be holy or separated to God. Despite the changing winds of culture, the elder clings to God and his word no matter what. It says they're to be disciplined. They're to be disciplined or self-controlled in every area of life. An undisciplined man has little resistance to sexual lust or anger or slothfulness. This is super practical, by the way, because undisciplined elders wouldn't get the sheep where they need to go. Sheep have to be moving in a certain direction, and that takes work. Herding sheep takes initiative. It takes resolve. It takes grit. It takes patience. It takes hard work. And so an elder must be disciplined. And then number nine, or excuse me, verse nine, really the capstone, the thing that sets the elders apart from the deacons. They must hold firm to the trustworthy word, meaning orthodox doctrine, and be able to give instruction or exhort the church in it. They have to be able to teach what is true, and then the end of verse 9, refute error, refute those who contradict it. They have to hold on to the truth, be able to explain the truth in ways that are helpful and profitable, and then guard the church from error. This is who can be an elder. Now, we've flown through this, and we needed to because we still have seven more verses. But I want to say one last thing. These are things that no elder will ever perfectly live up to, ever. Just ask our wives. But the And, by the way, these are things except for the being able to teach part. These are things elsewhere in Scripture uh, that all Christians are called to. So please pray for your elders. Please pray for me and Nick and Jared. Pray that we would be these kinds of men, at home first and in the church second. We cannot do this. We cannot do this without Christ. We cannot do this without your prayers. We cannot do this without your encouragement. Please pray for us that we would be the men we're supposed to be. So this section has told us who can be an elder. Let's look at the last section, verses 10 through 16. This tells us what we should do with false teachers. What should we do with false teachers? There's a contrast happening here. Paul says, here's, you know, here's a true teacher. Here now in verse 10 through 16, here's a false teacher. Verse 10, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. Especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. Since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, and that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit 
for any good work. Verse 10, Paul points out that there are many in the Cretan churches who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceitful. And these are especially coming from the circumcision party. What is that? Well, this means that they were likely Jewish Christians teaching that Jewish practices like circumcision must be upheld in order to truly be saved. This was happening in Galatia. This appears to be happening in churches all over the Roman Empire. People started coming in, Jewish people started coming in saying, to be a true Christian, you've got to believe the gospel and do this, that, or the other. This goes back to our sermon on the conscience, doesn't it? Anytime we add something to the gospel as a test of faithfulness, we're in danger of undermining the very gospel itself. That's what's happening here. And this is super dangerous. Why is it so dangerous? It's dangerous because it undermines the sufficiency of Jesus' work. If the merits of Jesus' death must be received by faith and doing these religious actions, then Jesus' death is not sufficient in and of itself to deal with sin. In other words, why did Jesus die? Why did God send the Son? Why did the Father send the Son if Jesus had to die to absorb the wrath of God and so that then we would do all these religious things, these rituals, to supplement His death? Doesn't that undermine His death? This is, this is dangerous, dangerous, serious doctrinal error. The gospel is at stake here. And so Paul says in verse 11, these people need to be silenced. Silence them. Church leaders like Titus must prevent this kind of false teaching from having a platform in the church. Anyone who stands up and says, believing the gospel and believing this, that, or the other is what you have to do to be saved needs to be silenced because it's undermining the very gospel itself. The gospel is simple. The gospel simply says that there's a holy God who made you that you've sinned against. But if you will look in faith to God's Son, Jesus Christ, embrace Him with all your heart, mind, and soul, Trust in Him. Turn away from your sins. Look at His death on the cross as your only hope for forgiveness of your sins. You will be saved. Period. 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 Any addition to that starts to undermine the very efficacy of the cross of Jesus Christ. These people need to be silenced. They must not be given a platform in the church. Elders have to be aware of what sound doctrine is in order to spot this kind of false doctrine. It also means that if an elder themselves ever compromises Scripture or the Gospel, they need to be removed. And as a congregational church, y'all remember our sermon on congregationalism many moons ago? As a congregational church, whose authority, or excuse me, whose responsibility is it to remove false teachers from the church? It's the church. As a congregational church, our church members have the ability and authority to choose their leaders. This means that you, the church members, are responsible for the purity of the teaching of this church. This should increase your sense of the seriousness of church membership. We are not a social club. We're a body of men and women tasked with the assignment of preserving the gospel of Jesus Christ and passing it on to the next generation. And so you, church members, are responsible to ensure that your elders are preaching the gospel and not Jewish myths and things that add to the gospel. This means that you, church member, need to know the gospel. You need to study the gospel. You need to be a student of God's word. You need to read the Bible. You need to read good books about the Bible. You need to know the gospel. Verse 12, Paul quotes from a 
Cretan prophet to illustrate his point. Crete was known in the ancient world for its moral decadence. One ancient historian said it was almost impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous, treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. The point isn't that every Cretan is like that, but that the Cretan churches are immersed in a culture of dishonesty and greed. And this means that this would make these churches more likely to tolerate those things as normal. Churches are prone to tolerate the things that their culture tolerates. So, Paul says to Titus, verse 13, rebuke these teachers sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to this teaching. Interestingly, though, he says, he doesn't say rebuke them. He doesn't say kick them out, rebuke them, silence them, get rid of them, you know, and be done with it. He says rebuke them sharply. Verse 13. And then he tells us why. There's a purpose clause. That they may be sound in the faith. So what does he want? He wants their repentance. He wants these guys to change. He doesn't want to just kick them out and prove theological superiority. He wants these guys to change. He wants them to come back to the gospel, to sound doctrine. And then it goes on, verse 14, that they wouldn't devote themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. He wants them to embrace the gospel and get rid of all this baggage that is encumbering their understanding of the gospel. He wants these people, these teachers, these false teachers, to come to Christ. I think we're so quick especially in circles like ours, we're so quick to say, you're wrong and I don't like you because I'm right and I'm better. We might not say that, but we feel these things. What if we took this posture though? We say, well, hey, friend, I think you're wrong on this. Here's what the Bible says. I really want you to embrace this. I pray that you'll embrace this. Please embrace this. Please embrace this. This doesn't mean that if they never embrace it that we just continue to allow them in our churches. It does mean though that there's a measure of longing for that person to come to the truth. Isn't that what we want? We don't want just to be right. We want people to be in the truth, right? We want more people to be in the truth with us. We don't want to just live in our silo and say, we got the truth and no one else got the truth, and so we're better than you. No, that's not the gospel. The gospel says we have nothing in ourselves. We have everything in Christ, and we want you to have that too. We want you to have Him too. And if you refuse Him, then we may have to talk about your membership in this church, but we want you to have Him. That's our longing. Our longing is for you to have Christ, not for us to be right. The false teachers there in Crete were focusing on outward religion. They weren't dealing with their inward corruption. Verse 15 says that believers, the pure... He calls the pure, he calls believers the pure, know that they don't need to obey human commands to be cleansed because Jesus has already cleansed them through his work on the cross. But unbelievers aren't pure because their unbelief and sin still defile them. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about the conscience? These unbelievers have a conscience that's defiled, tainted, and corrupted by sin and unbelief. They're confusing right and wrong. So I said a few weeks ago, part of God's sanctifying work in our lives is a repairing, a repairing of our consciences. 
We need the Word of God to reshape our thinking about what's right and wrong. That's what Paul wants for these false teachers. They need to be purified in conscience. Verse 16, though, he kind of leaves us on a negative note. He says that the, the works of these teachers prove that they're unbelievers despite their claim to know God. He says they profess to know God, but they're denying by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for, every, for any good work. This is super instructive for us, not because I think many or any of you are false teachers, but because of what he says right there in verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny Him with His works. With their works. They profess to know God, but they deny Him with His works. And this is what I said earlier at the beginning. A profession to know God does not mean you're saved. A profession to know Jesus Christ doesn't mean you're a Christian. Praying a prayer as a kid, getting baptized, and having a great time at vacation Bible school doesn't mean you're a Christian. Your profession has to be backed up with credible evidence of the grace of God in your life. He's calling that here works. Not works that justify, but works that flow out of our justification. These men are saying they know God, but their works deny their words. He even says they're detestable. When was the last time you called someone detestable? I wouldn't recommend it. I mean, Paul does, so I don't know, maybe that gives us a license too, but... He says they're detestable. Why is he using such strong language about these guys? Well, think about it. They're giving Jesus Christ, um, the God they claim to know, a bad reputation. They're undermining the very work of Jesus Christ. They're saying that you can say one thing about God and live a whole other way, and you're good. And Paul takes that super seriously, and so, so should we. We should seek to have a faith that's real, that's creating works, good works, in the church and out of the church. What kind of works am I talking about? Let me give you a few examples. What kind of works reveal true faith? Well, a love and submission and dedication to know the Bible would be a good work. A love for God's ways over the world's ways would be a good work. A growing hatred for sin that results in daily repentance would be good works. A love for the church that results in serving the church would be a good work. A love for our neighbors that results in serving our neighbors would be a good work. A love for the nations that results in working to get the gospel to them is a good work. Our profession has to be backed up with works or our profession is empty. God made Paul an apostle for the sake of the faith of his elect. Those who have real faith will produce real godliness. And those men who are growing in godliness and able to handle the word of God can one day be elders, Lord willing. But those who sound like they know God but don't live godly lives cannot be elders. And they should be dealt with accordingly. So as we close, I pray that God would give our church, continue to give our church elders that meet the qualifications of Scripture and give our elders grace to conform to the qualifications of Scripture on a daily basis, that we would be sound in faith and that we would be quick to refute any and every error for the sake of Jesus Christ and for the love of those who are perishing. Let's pray together. Father, we have...
covered so much here and more could be said. But I pray that you would take your word and cause it to bear fruit in our lives, in our hearts, in our families, and in our church. I pray, Father, that you would bless our church with members, men and women, who love sound doctrine and are zealous for good works. Men and women who've been so captured by the grace of God that they can't help but live new lives. Lord, I pray for our elders. In particular, I pray that you would keep us faithful to you, to our wives, to our families. Help us to be who we claim to be in public at home. Help us to daily fight against sin and be quick to confess sin and quick to repent. Help us to be zealous in our prayer life. Help us to be disciplined in every way. Help us to steward the things that you have bought at the price of the blood of your son. Help us to be good stewards. Help us to see your bride safely home. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.